0: Before we get started, I want to tell you about my friends at Lean Solutions Group. Lean works with over 500 logistics and transportation companies in North America. You can describe Lean as a nearshoring company or a workforce optimization company, but as a customer, I describe Lean as a strategic partner who can help me win in a very competitive industry. They can quickly provide your company with top talent in operations, sales, marketing, Technology and business process outsourcing. They have over 9,000 employees in Colombia, Guatemala, Mexico, and the Philippines. Everyone is working with LSG. You need to check out the link in the show notes. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is building a resilient port strategy with my friends, Brian Kempesty and Lauren Began. Brian is the founder of Port X Logistics, a transportation company that specializes in expediting containerized cargo throughout the U.S. and Canada. Lauren is a lawyer and the founder of Squall Strategies, a boutique maritime consulting and legal solutions company. There are lots of challenges with ocean shipping and the ports, so your company needs a resilient port strategy. So check out my combo with Brian and Lauren. How's it going, Brian? Very good. Good to be here today, Joe. Great. Please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. And then, Lauren, you, right after Brian, introduce yourself and your company, and where you're calling from today.
1: Yeah, Brian Kempesty. I'm the founder of Portex Logistics. We provide drayage, transloading, and trucking services across the United States with a combination of our company trucks, owner-operators, and logistics network. We, we handle every port and rail ramp in the United States and Canada. I'm calling Ooh. it today from Bozeman, Montana, and I, like Lauren, also have chickens.
0: <laughs> Very nice. Now uh, we, we're teasing before we hit record. Where where do all the best port guys live? In the Bozeman's. mountains. But but, <laughs> but you guys have offices at uh, a lot of the ports, right? Yeah,
1: we're on uh, the East Coast, uh, the West Coast, and we also have uh, operations in rail ramp cities such as Denver. Kansas City, Chicago, Memphis, Dallas. And who's your sweet spot? We deal with major NVOCCs and freight forwarders that are helping to transact global trade, as well as many major importers, mainly in the industrial automotive manufacturing
0: arena. Yeah. And before we hit record, we're talking about this is Ford X is different than the average drayage company. I could explain why, but why don't you do it (laughs) I say make
1: drayage part of your supply chain strategy and not an afterthought. We believe we're, if not the only, one of the only drayage companies that is actually tracking cargo on our customers' behalf from origin port, through destination port, through transload, or on the rail and then GPSing to final delivery. So we really are truly part of our customer supply chain strategy and just not uh, an afterthought, hey, customs is cleared, go get this container.
0: Yeah, I think that's what we all have to get to. We have to stop looking at things in these transactional uh, ways. We need strategic partners. And, and, And by the way, we can have lots of different companies in place, but I just like the idea of myself as one throat to choke, or as I said, one back to pat, and you guys can do that for me. Lauren, you're next. Please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from, and uh, tell us about your chickens too, since Brian's.
2: <laughs> sure. Thanks, Joe, for having me back on. I always love the conversation. So I'm Lauren Beagan. I'm the principal and founder of Squall Strategies, which is a maritime law firm consulting company. Really, I help navigate the legal regulatory side of the ocean shipping world, which obviously relates closely to the Federal Maritime Commission and the different things that are happening there. Appropriately so. I used to work there, so I understand it. But I also have a second company called the Maritime Professor. So not everything is a legal question. And sometimes companies just want a little explanation of what's going on in the ocean side of things, and maybe a rundown of what's happening in in the case law or what's happening with the regulatory, the new rules coming out. So the Maritime Professor is that company that fills that need. And it's been a, a great time. So I do have chickens i'm up here in south coast massachusetts i am from northern michigan originally and we were joking before we started recording i told my husband i'll move to the east coast we'll set down roots there but we have to be somewhere that at least i can have some chickens in the backyard so at one point i think we had oh god 10 12 chicken math right you you don't count your chickens once you get past four or five
0: (laughs) man, I was going to say, you're from Traverse City. And I was just in Traverse City. There doesn't seem to be any chickens there anymore. It is uh, too fancy for that now.
2: <laughs> Downtown. You can quickly. It's still a farm town. It's still 75% of the world's tart cherries are coming from Traverse City, Michigan. All right. I traded the little red cherry for the little red cranberry now. I'm in cranberry land. Very nice. Very Southwest nice. Now. I want to
0: talk to you both about this building resilient port strategy. And yesterday I was watching YouTube and... It's not brand new. It's been happening for a while. The problems in the Panama Canal. So, Brian, why don't you speak to some of the challenges we're having right now with the canal? And it's not the only thing, but it's one of the big things because I think 6% of world trade goes through the Panama Canal. Yeah, it's been happening
1: for several months now. Severe drought in Panama. The payload that the vessels can take through there has been diminished. The cost to go through the canal has increased Um, And the overall time to get through is increased too. In many instances going through the Panama Canal, you might see up to a week's delay if you're going all water to the East Coast. And just something I'll, I'll mention that's not necessarily the Panama Canal, but also affecting East Coast importers is the blank sailings out of India. So you're a week late coming out of India, you're a week late coming out of China going through the Panama Canal. So you've got a lot of things to navigate so to speak when you're dealing with
0: what is blank sailing
1: i don't i don't know that term meaning that they don't have enough cargo or the cargo's not paying enough so they're like we're not sending a vessel this week we're just going to hold off until we have more cargo ready to go
0: oh they just cancel. yeah oh this is the challenge with having supply chains that stretch across the world and by the way please explain uh, brian why we need the panama canal because we didn't always have it And we built, I don't know, 100 years ago, whatever it was, but it is critically important for the U.S.
1: trade. The only other way, if you didn't have the Panama Canal, you'd be going all the way down around South America, the amount of fuel- You still do, right? We do from time to time, but the amount of fuel that you burn, the timing, and we're talking about resiliency too. If something is becoming hot and you've got a, a, we'll say 45 or 50 day sailing, You can't get that thing off the vessel. You can't be nimble. So the Panama Canal is very critical. Less fuel is used, faster transit times, and those faster transit times can result in more resiliency.
0: Yep. And Lauren, in your practice, what do you run across lately that is is worrisome for the resiliency of supply chains?
2: Yeah. So speaking about Panama Canal, so the trouble is their regular day is 36 vessels. And by February, they're going to be reducing that down to 18 vessels a day. So previously it had to do with the draft, so the weight of the vessel. And so it was some of that bulk cargo, liquid cargo that was having trouble getting through the canal. And really the container side hadn't seen much of an impact yet. Now that they're reducing vessel numbers going through, there's a potential to flow over into the container side. And so that's where diversification is going to be the name of the game. And I think that we saw that through COVID congestion times, where if you put all your eggs in one basket, you were stuck in a hundred vessel line basket. Now people are getting a little bit, I think Brian, you said the perfect word, nimble, in that they can move their eggs around to a couple different baskets. Maybe you shift the the bulk of it, but that's it is you you retain some of that control, whether you're using medium-sized vessels, maybe even smaller vessels, you diversify your ports of entry, all of that. So the Panama Canal is one route, but diversifying your your availability out there.
0: Yep. Yeah, we've got challenges. And by the way, we all know also there is war in the Middle East. There's war still in Ukraine. Uh, we're having ongoing trade issues with certain countries like China, that we're very dependent on. And as long as we have supply chains that spread across the world, we have to worry about this. And by the way, I know Brian's company will say, "Okay, I we can take it, bring it to the West Coast and we'll rail it and truck it to the other side of the country for you. But this is why you need a strategy. It can't just be we ship this way because it might not be there next week
1: or next month. There's lots of factors too, Joe. I know we're gonna talk about labor, but Seattle is a major, major market, not just LA Long Beach, but Seattle's a major market. Husky terminal in Tacoma has had labor issues as of late. Having that diversification, Seattle, Oakland, LA, as well as using some of the East coast ports potentially. And then I'm not pointing out any steamship lines Um, because we're not in the ocean business. We're in the drayage and and transloading business. But if you look at the stock prices of many of these ocean carriers, I've looked up one this morning before we got on. March of 2022, they were trading at $84. Today, they're trading at
0: $7. Anybody that's
1: been in the business long enough to remember when Hanjin went out of business, that was a major catastrophe for a lot of people. and a lot of people had, as Lauren said, their eggs nearly all in one basket. Just diversifying that entire supply chain strategy, ports of entry, ocean carriers, you name it. I think diversification is the name of the game if you want to be resilient. right.
0: I see what you did with the chicken thing because you guys are into chickens. <laughs> I want to walk I want to walk through we, when, before we hit record, we talked about six six steps, six, six things you need to do to have a resilient port strategy. And again, it's really speaking to the challenge of things change very rapidly. We don't know what's going to happen in many regions of the world. We don't know what's going to happen uh, with our labor challenges, with our, the Panama Canal challenges. So you need a strategy. It just can't be, we drop off at Long Beach. We pick up and we do this. That might not be there next week. So the first thing I want to hear from you first, uh, Brian, then I want to get your two cents learned. Um, The first thing is understanding your domestic supply chain. What do you mean by that, Brian?
1: Where are your distribution centers or where are your manufacturing facilities? If If you're one distribution center or one manufacturing facility and you're outside of LA Long Beach, obviously that is going to be your go-to port of entry, but we're seeing growth in the United States across the Southeast and in Texas, in the distribution world, in the automotive world, and in the EV world. We're seeing a lot of that electric vehicle and electric battery stuff throughout the Carolinas, Tennessee, Alabama. So if you are growing in that Southeast and Gulf region, you can use both East and West Coast ports and be very effective.
0: Yeah. Before you go, uh, Lauren, I want to get your two cents. I just looked it up the other day. I've always said 80% of the population lives east of the Mississippi, but we've been moving uh, from the Northeast and the Midwest, West and South for a while. Now I think it's about 65% of the population lives east of the Mississippi. That's still the majority. And We have a whole bunch of empty states for the most part in the middle. And we have the West Coast, we have Texas, and then we have a lot of people on this side. So to your point, Brian, where are your end customers? Where are your DCs? Your two cents, Lauren.
2: Yeah, and we're seeing a lot of investment in ports, not just the largest ports, but all ports. So the diversification of ports is becoming more of a possibility if you still want to keep the economy of scale with bringing in those larger vessels. And so you're able to, the supply chain foundation has to be available to you and and has to be ready to work if you're going to be, you still need things fast, you still need things affordable. And so diversification is a nice concept if you can afford it. But for those who can, and that's what the investment in the ports is helping to provide is that economies of scale. So it's it's not just the largest vessels coming into LA Long Beach or New York, New Jersey, but now you're able to get to some of the smaller ports and, and some of the medium-sized ports on maybe medium-sized vessels. Zim has notably some medium-sized vessels there. It really helps you control that
0: piece. Please explain the medium-sized vessel to those of us who don't get onto the ports.
2: <laughs> yeah, you could have upwards of 20,000 TEU, right? So, like, the I'd say the mediums are probably more like TEU is 20 foot
0: equivalents or
2: 20 foot equivalent unit, which is almost a little bit of an outdated unit because most containers that (laughs) you're seeing out there are going to be the 40 FEUs, uh, 40 foot equivalent unit. But if you've ever seen, but not the 53 footers that are on the surface transport, but if you've ever seen a really rugged looking container behind a truck and it looks like just a regular truck, that's probably a 40 foot half of that. (laughs) So vessel sizes are really measured in TEU. And so what the capacity of that vessel is if it were loaded entirely by 20 foot equivalent units. And so some of the largest ones out there are in the 20-ish thousands, but I'd say probably like 12 to 15, 16,000 might be a medium range, um, maybe even a little bit less
1: than that.
0: Interesting. So what's the advantage of having those units, Brian? I
1: want to back up one step Lauren talked about if you can afford it. I think it depends on what kind of business you are, right? If you're an importer of less expensive toys or less expensive parts that are not critical to some sort of production, then you have to look at those economies. But if you were in any sort of production environment, you cannot afford not to diversify because, Joe, you were in the automotive business. What does it cost if a line goes down? Uh, They tell you millions of dollars an hour. I don't know. I've never seen anyone have
0: to write a check, but they threaten you.
1: (laughs) So whether you pay an extra $400 for your container, (laughs) who cares? So that is where that diversification comes in. And what type of business are you in? I think it it really matters. So if you're like, I
0: I don't even know, I'm going to make this up, but if I'm getting toys and I'm a retail outlet and you go, okay, I. Maybe yeah, Christmas time, super critical. In the middle of summer, maybe a little less critical, right?
2: And that's it, right? It's a Ford in, in both money and time.
0: Yep. So we we the first thing is understanding your domestic supply chain. Where are the end customers? Where are the DCs? What do I need to do? The next point I want to talk about, and you both started to touch on it, multiple points of entry. And Brian, please speak to this. I want to get your two cents, Lauren. Um, Ports are different. Some are, some have. We have two separate unions: one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. Some are very automated. Some are not. We have certain. Somebody told me I was in Savannah for TMSA, and somebody told me that's the fastest growing port. So please speak to this idea of the multiple ports of entry, and not all ports are created equal.
1: Yeah, specifically if you're in the Southeast or Midwest, you can use both sides of the country to to import, but you do have two different unions. Um, you have the ILWU on the West Coast uh, and the ILA on the East Coast. The ILWU recently, they signed a contract, but there's still little dust-ups here and there. We were mentioning the Husky Terminal had closed a couple days in the past couple of weeks because of some labor issues. And the ILA, which is the East Coast ports, their contract is up in June of 2024. And they're already for <laughs> union labor. So really, again, going back that diversification strategy is helping you around potential labor issues. It's not just about speed and and timing on the ocean, but it's also about avoiding potential pitfalls that might be out there in the labor world.
0: Yep, I think I spoke to the CEO over at Port of Virginia and I, from what I understand they spent quite a bit of money on automation for their ports. And and I, from what I understand the East coast is a little easier to work with fewer labor rules. There's fewer
1: union jobs percentage wise on the East coast versus the West coast. And at the time it was called the APM terminal, but Maris has since sold it. So I don't know what they call it these days. I still call it that, but they put an immense amount of automation in there and it's a really impressive terminal versus it's much harder to do that on the West coast, but they have made some strides and some terminals out there. Um, but traditionally the east coast has been easier
0: so i had read a book because he was going to be on the podcast for christopher mims wrote a book he's the tech writer at wall street journal and it's called arriving today and i read that or listened to that book and one of the things he said is the union out in the long beach and la agree or i guess that whole west coast agreed to automation and it was 10 12 15 years ago and But they really have dragged their feet on it along the way because and now the terminal operators say we have the right in this contract to create this automation. But at the same time, now beyond the union, you had government, which was sympathetic to the union, saying, no, we don't want you to do it. (laughs) Just because you have an agreement with the union doesn't mean you're going to quickly automate. Here's another point,
1: too, Joe. We're talking about diversification in labor. A lot of cargo from. Asia comes through Prince Rupert in Canada and British Columbia and Vancouver. And they also had their own labor issues. That oh goodness. And then you've got the Canadian rail. So there's just there's a lot of moving parts. And we have to even though we're talking about primarily U.S. importers, Canada is still a, a, a very important piece to that supply chain strategy because of Vancouver. Oh, yeah
0: yeah and you're from Buffalo originally and Laura and I are from Michigan so we are very connected to what goes on in Canada.
2: <laughs> and Prince Rupert, I, if I remember correctly, they're entirely automated or almost entirely automated there there's quite a bit of an automation element to it that it makes them if all things are going well, it makes them a fast area to go through into the Midwest
1: When all things go well, Prince Rupert is awesome. It's the quickest transit time from Asia. When there's an issue, though, a train derailment, a storm, it's 923 miles north of Vancouver, and it's a population of only 2,000 people. So when you run into issues and you start needing to do drayage and transloading in Prince Rupert, it costs you an arm and a leg because you're deadheading mountains there too. Not a ton. You're actually circumventing a lot of the mountains. But when you have to run 923 miles just to pick up a load, And then you've got a town of only 10,000 people and there's no labor to do transloading. You get one hiccup in Prince Rupert, you're in trouble. If it does go great, CN's got a great service and it's only four or five days from Prince Rupert to Chicago, but
0: it's the what ifs that that can be problematic.
2: It's all risk management, right?
0: (laughs) Exactly. And so we talked about number 1 understanding your domestic supply chain what it's where you, where your end customers where your dc's where your warehousing so when we talked about multiple ports of entry and recognizing that all ports have different operations they're not all set up the same and by the way if you look at when they put when they invest in ports it's really awesome for the surrounding area so Brian alluded to a lot of the a lot of the growth in industry is in the south and in the southeast and Southwest. And we're seeing those ports are really a hub for economic growth. That's Houston, Savannah. I'm sure you guys know all the rest of them. Virginia, I guess would be counting that. And we need them. We, these, we need these investments. We need these ports to be successful. It's, it's one of the engines of growth for this country.
2: Yeah, that's so true. And one of the biggest things that happened that was illuminated during COVID was, so if you're gonna use PPE, it, it was, for the most part, being brought over by ocean shipping, which is 90% of everything comes by ocean shipping. Maritime workers weren't even included in the essential workforce listings federally. So they might have been statewide or whatever. But when it was first came out, you can't, port workers have to be there because if you're going to get your PPE off that boat, you got to have people there. So to, to have them not included, that was quickly remedied. But it shows how little it was noticed Yet how important and essential to everyday life it was. People started getting acutely aware of it when they started my toilet paper, whatever it was they were trying to. I I was having conversations at Trader Joe's with the reason why we don't have this special sauce is because the bottles is stuck. It's not the liquid itself. It's the bottle. And I was like, I'm having this conversation in the wild. This is amazing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. By the way, I drink way too much Diet Coke. I'm holding my bottle up here. And there's some, I forget what it is, but some ingredient in it is a like a byproduct of some oil production. And so they weren't doing as much oil production. So they could get by Diet Coke, which I was like, OK, let's just end this COVID. We can't keep doing this. <laughs> I can't survive without my Diet Coke. The next thing I want to talk about is labor. We started to touch on it. So, Brian, you go first. Talk about some of the labor challenges we have. So I guess
1: the thing that came to light last year was uh, a ruling in California called AB5 which meant you couldn't hire independent contractors as truck drivers. So they either needed to become their own small companies or we needed to have all company drivers, which at Portex, we were a little bit ahead of the curve and all of our drivers are W2 hourly drivers. But that is a big shift in California. We think- we're looking into the crystal ball and saying Seattle is probably next on the list, and then New Jersey would likely come after that. So that's going to be a big shift in the the drayage workforce going from independent contractor to um, W-2 employees. And then uh, Lauren and I were, were talking earlier about uh, this new proposal that truck drivers were excluded from overtime, and now they're talking about making that mandatory that truck drivers get overtime, which is going to be a huge increase in cost and again, potentially affect uh, shipping prices and inflation.
2: Yeah, that's right. It goes back to a 1938 law that that is is being manipulated through proposal bill proposals in the Congress right now.
0: So we are very dependent on when we think about our uh, the biggest trucking companies, they have the, a lot of drivers, like you guys have your own drivers, but you, I'm assuming you also use, you use owner operators? Do most companies use owner operators around the country? Most companies do. A large percentage of our drivers
1: are W2 drivers, but we still do use an owner operator network. In Portex, we're a decent sized company, but we're not anywhere close to the JB Hunts and Schneiders and large truckload carriers or LTL carriers that are out there in the marketplace. But you you think of J.B. Hunt or Schneider or those big companies as, well, they're 100% asset-based. And that's just simply not true. They're, I don't know of one trucking company that doesn't use owner-operators in some way. We want that
0: flexibility. And and by the way, so do they. Exactly. <laughs> so this is the challenge with AB5. By the way, I saw um, a video, and it was a guy who was a mu- musician. And he says, I'm a musician, I'm L.A.-based, and uh, I have a band. So I'll go and do events. And he said, I have, (laughs) we've always been all contract. So I have a guy, I pay a drummer 400 bucks to come out and play. I pay a a guitarist this much. And he says, and now they're saying, no, those guys have to be employees. So he says, we find ourselves really hurting ourselves. And I know we're starting to get exclusions across a lot of industries. And by the way, if you're connected to, I, I, I saw like Nancy Pelosi's district, a lot of her Friends in California got an exemption, so we're not exempt from it yet. But I keep thinking it makes no sense that I can't have an owner operator. Me, let's just say I, I owned a, my own truck and I am based in California, and then you tell me it's you're going to make it harder on owner operators. Like I, I guess if I have I hire one guy as a fellow owner operator, I have to make him an employee. He doesn't want that. It makes no sense. Yeah, they want to be able to pick and choose their own hours, right? They, they don't want to be told what to do. This all started with Lyft and with Lyft and Uber, where everybody, for the most part, who works for Lyft and Uber says, I like the flexibility of the job. I can go out and I can drive for three hours when the kids are in school or when I got some spare time. They aren't, they don't want, and by the way, as soon as you tell them you have to work at surge time, they say, I quit. I don't want to work when you want me to work. And yeah, it's a senseless law. But anyway, that's not the only law that we have going on in California. Lauren, speak a little bit about CARB.
2: Yeah, and I do want to say something about the exemptions that you were just listing. In the independent contractor world, it was targeted for Uber and Lyft. But some of the exemptions that are allowed out there are like doctors and lawyers. And I, I think I was even reading hair oh, sil- hairstylists, <laughs> and there's quite a list of exemptions that what One thing that we learned, and it seemed almost quickly forgot, is the more restrictive things are around the movement of goods, the more expensive they can become. And so, while the intention might be well intended, the offset is things might get a little bit more expensive for your everyday. And I think we're seeing an inflation that the grocery store inflation. Everybody is spending two hundred bucks just to walk away with like dinner for the night. I think that's part of the longer term. Things that are happening here, so to not have truck drivers be exempted, it's not entirely from this, but the stressors put on some of the movement of some of this good these goods, we're seeing trucking companies go out of business, and so that's also going to shrink the market of the availability of people who can move this stuff to get back yeah, to your. And door. you're seeing
0: moved over. I'm assuming you see this, Brian, that the guys you used to work with who might be in California, all of a sudden are based in Nevada.
1: Yeah. No, they have definitely, some of them have made the move. And the labor market has been very strong for a couple of years now. And some people, again, CARB comes into uh, effect in California. They have an- What does that stand for? Clean Air Resource Board. So when that comes into effect and they need to buy a newer truck, and the trucks were really expensive during COVID, they're like, geez, I can go nail shingles on a roof for 35 or 40 bucks an hour why do I want to drive a truck? Oh,
0: by the way, I can work in the warehouse that I keep picking up at. A lot yeah. of truckers, from what I understand, are quitting and going. And by the way, from what I understand about trucking, a lot of those guys are skilled, skilled at the trades. So they can go build houses. And by the way, we are short a lot of houses in a lot of markets. That's why they cost <laughs> so much in most regions. And yeah, if we don't make this a decent job, if we don't let these guys make a good living, We shouldn't expect that they're gonna be there.
1: I hear here in Montana, you think of Montana geez, it can't be that expensive. It has gotten amazingly expensive. And I've been trying to get a gas line run at my house for a month and a half to get a new propane stove put in
0: and I'm still waiting on a (laughs) plumber. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's where everybody's kids should be giving us giving some second thought to college and say, you know what? I can learn to plaster a house. I can be very successful. Anyway, I want to take a quick time out to tell you can now listen to the logistics of logistics on Wreaths Across America radio. I'll put a link in the show notes. Wreaths Across America provides informational inspiring content about members of the U.S. Armed Forces, their families and military veterans. Their mission is to remember, honor and teach. Wreaths Across America succeeds because of the generous support of the trucking community. Take a listen and please consider volunteering. So getting back to it, talk about the impact of CARB and you owned, you own trucks, Brian. So tell us what your strategy has been around this. I would say as a drayage company, we're a little bit
1: more sophisticated as a drayage company. We're not like just a couple of X truck drivers. Yeah, I, I think it. a lot. <laughs> when you go through this. So we saw it coming and we we've worked on upgrading our fleet over the, the past several years to make sure that we were going to be compliant. And uh, I mentioned Seattle, too. We see that coming. We're making sure that the trucks up there are upgraded and we're ready and we're not going to be caught. Um, what do you mean upgraded? What is What do they have to be upgraded to? Lauren might know better. It used to be 2012. There's a certain age and a certain mileage that you have to be. You need to be, I think, newer than 10 years old, and I think it's 800,000 to a million miles, somewhere in that range. I think it's 800,000 miles that you need to be under, or you're not carb compliant. If you're not carb compliant, then you can't operate in California. You can't go into the port of Oakland or LA. And basically, you can't work anymore.
0: And by the way, wasn't drayage trucks typically skewing older than the rest of the over the road trucks? I would say fairly
1: significantly older, <laughs> that was part of the reason that they California introduced carbus. They're trying to clean up the, the air and the ports and all, I think, good intentions. Then you've got the unintended consequences of these trucks being shipped out of state or being put out of service and the increase in cost and then the increase in inflation. Uh, one thing leads to the next.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You look at these all feel slightly, they feel incremental, but when they start to add up a whole bunch of little things, somebody says, you know what? Move my stuff out of that port. <laughs> Tell me about the guy. What is it? What'd you say? St. Rupert? What is Prince it called? Rupert. Prince Rupert. Prince Rupert. <laughs> Tell me about Prince Rupert up there in Canada. <laughs> anyway, we've talked about the building of resilient port strategy and it begins with understanding where your stuff is going your supply chain and recognize that multiple ports of entry have to be part of that strategy next you really have to understand or better, better yet get a partner who understands the labor on the east coast and the west coast and then you really do have to understand california is such a critical piece of the puzzle when we talk about because it's where all the stuff from the, from china comes but there's CARB, there's AB5, and it feels like that is going to continue with regulatory stuff that we have to concern ourselves with.
2: It's difficult. I was just going to say, I just want to jump in there. It's So we're, we're highlighting California here, but any time that the supply chain ecosystem starts to become more piecemeal, right? So California is taking these actions as an independent state on their own fruition. That doesn't mean that we're joking. That doesn't mean that Washington state is doing the same thing. And so maybe then you start looking around, maybe it reduces the competitiveness of these things that don't necessarily relate to the supply chain, but are directly impacting them like the drainage community and this hundred percent emission free or or hundred percent electric by a certain target date. It might get pretty expensive because now maybe drainage rates are going to go up. And in the next 10 years in, in those areas, whereas if you're just up North, it might be more expensive for the ocean freight side, but it's going to be less expensive yeah. land And you side, just have so. to,
0: again, I think one of the things we learned during COVID was some of our supply chains, not all of them, some of them were a little brittle. So what did we come out of that with? We want resilience and resilience means give me some options. And given what's going on, not only that, we're just talking most about what's going on in our country. There's so many changes happening in China and in Europe right now, and then in the Middle East, who knows when the other shoe is going to drop? And so we, we have to build resiliency into it now while we can.
2: Yeah, we we talked about too many eggs in any basket, right? Then you become beholden to that basket. We're also seeing an effort toward nearshoring, which is using maybe Canadian manufacturing or Mexican manufacturing, just to try to relieve the pressure that is the Asia to US, the the Asia to West Coast, or Asia to East Coast, but really that reliance upon all of our goods coming in. So 90% of everything moved by ocean shipping, a significant portion of that is because it's coming from Asian countries. China, Yeah, I mean, let's just say So I wanna talk
0: about OSRA, O-S-R-A. Now I know I'm gonna lose you guys here shortly. So Lauren, to the best of your abilities, shorten this up for us. Tell us what is OSRA and why we need to concern ourselves with it if we're building a port strategy.
2: Sure, so the ocean shipping format, yeah. So the Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2022, this was Congress deciding to do something once things, once stuff was hitting the fan, right, during COVID congestion. So they dove in, they set 13 invoice requirements for invoices re- surrounding detention demerge, billing. So that is basically when stuff gets stuck either at a port or stuck inside the container, you start get, getting charged because it's trying to kickstart or incentivize the movement of that stuff to move. And so Congress wanted to dive in because initially, prior to, you could really just have a bar napkin that said 5000 bucks to merge, send it across, the, send it across town, and, and that was the bill. Congress wanted a little bit more prescriptiveness to it. They also gave, required the Federal Maritime Commission, which is the independent regulatory agency surrounding this world, the directive to undertake three rulemakings that are going to be a little bit more guardrails and clarifying some of these otherwise open-ended questions, partly around detention to merge, partly around the reasonableness or unreasonableness of refusal of cargo, those sorts of things. So the Ocean Shipping Reform Act kind of kick-started- When those. does
0: that come into effect?
2: So it did in 2022, June 16th, 2022. So it's been around for about a year and a half now.
0: Brian, want to you get your two cents on- Asura. And I know we, we've talked before about detention and demurrage and the kind of the nightmare that a lot of your customers went through and you probably went through during COVID. Yeah, the demurrage is one thing, right? What we've done at PortX to try
1: to mitigate that is track on our customers' behalf from origin port through destination port to ensure that we're getting uh, um, enough notice to plan for drivers and, and warehouse workers and and what have you. So that's one thing. That was an issue. And then whether you could pick up the container or not, whether you get an appointment and you had to approve it. But for us as a trucker, I think the bigger part of this was something called per diem when your container is out in the community longer than your contract states. And some of these smaller ocean carriers, even some of the larger ones, you couldn't return an empty. And if you couldn't return an empty because you couldn't get an appointment, there was no place to take it back. As a trucker, we were getting, we were on the hook for the per diem charge. You can't return it. (laughs) Ultimately, the, the shipper or the importer should be responsible for it. But we would get shut out of the port. They would basically force you to pay the per diem or else you would get shut out and you'd almost shut your business down. So as a trucker, the per diem, portion of it was the biggest thing because you were handcuffed and forced to pay that amount if you want to continue to operate.
2: Yeah. And that was something that the Federal Maritime Commission took note of. And the chairman, Dan Maffey received a letter from the Bi-State Motor Carriers Association up in New York, New Jersey area saying that was happening. And so he went on at the time and was like, not only does this seem unfair, and I'm paraphrasing, but- he even went as far as to say, maybe they should be paying you to hold their stuff while they can't take it back. Yeah.
0: For those who aren't in this day-to-day, Lauren, give us what is demurrage and what is detention?
2: Sure. And the way that Brian's speaking of per diem, it's essentially kind of detention. So detention is the use of the box. And so you essentially get charged rent if you are holding over the use of the box. And so once it's returned custody to whoever it is, then you don't get charged that rent to incentivize you to move. Demurrage is the same idea on the yard. So the container comes off the boat. You don't have to pick it up that day. Usually there's five, whatever. There's a certain number of free days that you get before you start getting charged. You'll get a few more days of a lower rate of, okay, just in case you forgot, your stuff's still here. And then after that, it starts really amping up because they're like, you forgot your stuff. This is not a warehouse. This is a loading zone. Come get your crap. So that's the intention, the idea. And it's the incentivization principle that the FMC is starting to really throw out into the industry saying, we're incentivizing the movement of goods here, not trying to make money off of these charges. How did that
1: go haywire during COVID, Brian? (laughs) There was one, warehouses didn't have anywhere to put the cargo. So That got stuck. The appointment system in many ports, you need an appointment. It was very difficult to get the appointments. But again, going back to us, it was on the returning of the empties where you got, you know, you could get stuck, you could get the per diem charges and you needed to be very careful about what steamship lines you were even going to deal with, because there was three in particular that were very difficult to return empties. And if you're counting on your yard to pre-pull containers to and then deliver from there, if you've got 100 spots in your yard and you've got 100 empty containers, you were basically at gridlock and you couldn't even uh, do business anymore. So in Southern California, you saw containers during COVID parked all over the streets, all over L.A. Long Beach,
0: which which is, by the way, this is why um, we have the Ocean Shipping Reform Act because of some of the challenges we had. And so again, I, 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 it's funny, I, I will say some of the stuff we talked about in California, we look and go AB5 feels unnecessary. Carb, okay, I'm, we all want cleaner air. But this felt like guardrails that I think most of us would say, yes, we need to make this. Because, Lauren, you made a great point, is we want goods to move. <laughs> and we, wanna, we want the right incentives in place so goods move. That's why this country is successful. And you were to the point... W-
1: Before that was enacted, obviously the supply chain has gotten better because the volume has decreased, but an importer and or a trucker like you had no leg to stand on to dispute a bill with a steamship line from another country. It was like either you pay it or you're
0: shut out like you had no choice. (laughs) I, I joke about it during COVID. I got a call from one of the largest logistics companies in the world. And they called and it was a friend of mine said, would you talk to my friend? And I said, okay, sure. I talked to everybody. And he's, and it was a guy from one of the largest logistics companies in the world saying, hey, Joe, I hear people, maybe you can help me out, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, he goes, I have a whole bunch of these purple mattresses and they're on the West Coast and I need a warehouse to put them in. And he goes, I don't know, it could be a year. I just need just, and, and I was like, you're calling a podcaster to ask where, if I have warehousing space on the West coast. And he said, it's gotta be like a hundred miles from LA. And I was like, and you're calling me. The, lar- the largest logistics company in the world is calling me for advice on, oh yeah. I'll... <laughs> By the way, if I knew you, Brian, I would have called that. Brian probably had the place. <laughs> but anyway, that brings us to our final point. So I'm going to summarize. I want to get to talk about the final points. We're talking about how to build a resilient, port strategy. And I'm doing that with my friends, Lauren and Brian. So we're talking about first understanding your domestic supply chain. Where's your stuff? Where's it got to go? Secondly, you have to have a strategy that has multiple ports of entry, some diversity, because there are always going to be challenges at ports. We talked about labor in the ports, but also labor, the, the truck drivers. It's always a concern, right? Then we talked about California in particular has CARB and AB5, which is gonna limit some of their, it's gonna limit uh, capacity there. And then we just talked about Ocean Shipping Reform Act. And again, this is, you need partners who understand this stuff and where the market's going. So I think that's super important these days. The last one, and I think you guys would both agree on this. The last one is the right partner. So (laughs) Lauren, I'll let you go first. Why do we need the right partner in this? I think it's pretty obvious. (laughs)
2: <laughs> There's a lot happening right and there, and it's moving pretty quickly, especially on the regulatory side. Having somebody that understands what's happening, your rights, your recourse, if something goes wrong, certainly your ability to get some money back on detention and demerge because we saw people in the tens of millions of dollars category with demerged detention bills, so yeah, that's why it's so important to to really understand and have that nuanced understanding. Yeah. And
0: by the way, in your case, they need that a consultant and a lawyer. They need somebody. So who do you work with? Who's your sweet spot? And, w- and why should they work with you?
2: Yeah, so I really work with anybody in the industry. I work with both associations. I work with BCOs. I work with shippers. And really it's to help either understand options for recourse, which isn't always litigation, right? I I, I like to have a, a business negotiation approach, um, but understanding what the regulatory world is, if you're generally right in your thinking or you're wrong in your thinking or how that com- kind of complies, that's where I, I come in and really help. This is in this instance when this demerge was happening. This is probably something that would look favorable if you were to try to get it back or this was just a bad situation. That's just. T- too tough. We talk through some of these individual situations. But then, like I said, I also provide education to companies so that other companies who are providing maybe more of the operational or logistics can understand the total picture when they dive down into the specifics of the logistics world.
0: Yep. And by the way, I talk to people three times a week on the podcast. There's no space that changes more than the ports and all of the ports of entry. It's constant changing going on and we need to have a strategy around it. And I think in the past, we we were pretty much static. Now I think we're in, in dynamic mode. Brian, why do we need the right partner? And why is PortX that right? I already know why PortX X is the right partner, but why don't you tell us why PortX is that right partner? <laughs> we pride ourselves on being subject matter experts
1: in the business. So we understand what's happening in Seattle at T18, versus Husky in Tacoma. We understand what's happening in Vancouver and Prince Rupert. We understand the labor issues and the port issues in LA, Long Beach. We know the nuances of the Savannah River and what can get up and down the Savannah River. We've got our eyes on the Panama Canal. And the fact that we are, we've got the ability with our assets and our logistics network to handle every port and rail ramp, be a strategic partner. And I've been pounding the, the table on this for the last several years make your DRAGE provider part of your supply chain solution and not an afterthought. And with our diversity and our knowledge, I think that's something that we really deliver at
0: PortX. Yeah, and by the way, there's a lot of DRAGE companies that do one port. So when you say, hey, give me a port strategy, they're gonna say, well, let me me explain why the Port of Virginia is the most important port. You're like, yeah. So if, if you don't serve every port in the US and Canada, then you're going to be biased and you're not going to be talking about multiple ports of entry isn't going to be part of your discussion with potential clients. Anyway, final thoughts on this topic. I'll let you go first, Lauren, then I'll ask you, Brian.
2: Sure. I think that's, we talked about this previously, that previous to COVID people and and certainly shippers and BCOs were most concerned with once it hits the port, how do I get it to the end mile? How do I get the goods so that I can use them? Now, Because of COVID, people have awoken to this other major factor and what ocean shipping really impacts the overall cost, obviously. But then what happens once it actually hits the port, not just the outgate, but what happens inside the port world? It's a complicated area, right? You have both owners and you have operating ports. So you have the landlord ports or the operator and, and which port you're working with. And so that's why it's so important, especially with somebody like Port X Logistics that understands the logistics behind it and what's actually happening in those specific instances, but then taking it into the total picture. Things are moving quickly. The regulatory world of ocean shipping and and just supply chain generally is shifting quickly. And the Federal Maritime Commission is responsible for the fair and efficient movement of goods and, and protecting the U.S. importer, exporter, and consumer. And so understanding that they're an agency, <laughs> a federal agency at that, and that they are regulating this industry and, and starting to change some of those rules that you got to pay attention to that. And that's important.
0: Yeah. And I, last time we talked, Lauren, we talked about this. There is Department of Transportation and there is the Federal Maritime Commission. Please explain the difference for my audience.
2: Sure. Yep. Yep. So Department of Transportation is a cabinet level agency. So Secretary Pete, Pete Buttigieg of South Bend.
0: I think he's a Michigander now.
2: <laughs> he is. I think he's, I think he's up north. He lives north. in Traverse city. Yep, I think he is. So he is the Secretary of Department of Transportation, which the Maritime Administration sits within. So FAA, a lot of different modes of transportation are also there. That is a cabinet level agency that is connected to the administration. The Federal Maritime Commission is an independent regulatory agency, similar to the Securities Exchange Commission, uh, Federal Communications Commission, any of those kind of independent commissions. So it's independent, meaning that the five commissioners there aren't changing with every administration. Good. You may have a change of the chairman. <laughs> but it stays independent, right, of the ping pong, I guess, these past few uh, election cycles of the election cycle. So it's supposed to be a little more insulated from the politics. And so it's a great agency to really be in the supply chain side, which is supposed to be a little less political, and it's supposed to be more evergreen in in its approach. And so the Federal Maritime Commission is that agency that is responsible for that. And MARAD is the promotional side, and they really promote the U.S. flag fleet and the merchant mariners. But the Federal Maritime Commission is flag neutral, and they really want to see the movement of the ocean goods. And they're the regulatory and judicial side. They also have case law.
0: Last word goes with you, Brian. Last word on the topic. I just go back to
1: being nimble, using the multiple ports of entry, making sure that your sales, your fulfillment, and your production can all be handled when there there could be a storm, there could be a labor issue, there could be a a litany of different issues that come up. And having that diversification, people might say, maybe it costs me an extra couple hundred dollars a container, whether it be for your drayage or your ocean shipping, but when you don't have it for production or you can't fulfill an order for a major company like a Walmart or a target. And you've got all those penalties, that little, those couple hundred dollars extra per container, you might look at it like, geez, we spent a little extra money, but at the end of the year, when you take everything into account holistically as a company, having that diverse and nimble supply chain is very important. Awesome. Awesome.
0: So I appreciate both coming on my podcast. What I'll do is I'll put a link, to each one of your LinkedIn profiles, a link to your websites and any other links you guys give me. What conferences will I see you at, Lauren? Any?
2: I just had a, I, I just had a baby. He's two months old. Bring so him. in the next six months, you'll see me re-enter the, <laughs> the conference circuit. So I know
0: I see Port X at every conference I go to. What conferences will I see you guys at? The next ones that come to
1: mind are Manifest, which is going to be- I Las know, Vegas. I'll see you at
0: Manifest.
1: Super Bowl week, so we're super excited about that. And then The Lions are playing a, in a game in Las Vegas that week. you you hope the bills will not be it does not look i saw that yeah and then we will be at uh, tpm after that which is probably the biggest that's a super bowl for you guys (laughs) i call it the super bowl of containerized cargo that's uh, a number one and that's in long beach that's in long beach yes and that's what in april no that's that's the first week of march and manifest i think
0: is towards the end of the first
1: week of february
0: yes i think it's fifth through the seventh so I look forward to seeing you guys at some of these conferences and thank you both so much. I, again, I really appreciate it. And again, if you're listening to this podcast and you're uh, bringing in freight from overseas, it, it, you probably know a lot of these issues, but it's amazing to me. Nothing changes more than the ports and of all the people I talk to. We can talk about technology. I know Brian, we didn't get into your technology. You guys got great tech, but it doesn't change as quick as this. It's crazy how much it's changing. You
1: just need to know, you need to know about all ports and all things. If you want to be
0: effective, you can't be a one-trick pony. Yep, exactly.
2: And if you've seen one port, you've seen <laughs> one port. They are—they each have their own
0: uniqueness. Yep, yep. Thank you both so much for taking the time. All right, thank you.
2: Thank you, great to be back.
0: And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward.